Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. We are the second Sunday of Advent, Peace Week. Yay, Peace Week. We're all at peace, right? Everything is peaceful in the world because we have reached Peace Week. Nobody has cut us off. Nobody is nervous about driving in the snow. Nobody is, is uh, struggling to figure out what to get as a gift for your spouse. Everybody is at peace because Peace Week has come. Isn't that great? Doesn't it just feel so good to be at peace is everywhere around us? Oh, I feel so good. I was so at peace this weekend. Alyssa and I, we, we got away. We went up to Spokane. I had just the most peaceful meeting of district leadership on Friday that you can imagine. And then we, we were downtown, and downtown Spokane right now, they, have, they are encouraging gambling. I'd encourage you to stay away from downtown Spokane. They, are, they have put up Christmas trees, and you can buy raffle tickets and, and try to win these Christmas trees. They're beautiful, and they're, they have gift packages with them. And uh, I was very, it was hard on my heart because here I was buying raffle tickets as a pastor of the Church of the Nazarene. I don't gamble, folks. I don't play the lottery, but I bought raffle tickets. And so peace was elusive as I was wandering around the tight halls looking at, at Christmas trees. And as I was, you know, weaving between people, and Alyssa said, man, you made that guy really mad because peace was just everywhere. As uh, Peace is elusive. Peace is elusive in these days, isn't it? It's, it's hard to come by sometimes. We, after going through the first eight chapters of the, the book of Romans this fall, we find ourselves the first two Sundays of Advent back in Romans. And so this morning I'm, I'm in Romans 14 and 15. Romans is, is a, a letter to a church that found itself made up of, of people from different backgrounds. And we think of diversity as being so beautiful, but diversity comes with problems too. Diversity can be divisive. Diversity can, can make dissensions apparent in the church at times. And the difference that, that led to the greatest division in the church in the first century was the division between people who were Jewish by birth and those who were Gentiles. And Paul addresses specifically both groups throughout the letter to the Roman church. He, in, in chapter 1, right there when he gives the thesis statement for the entire letter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God for salvation. And what's he say right after that? First to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. Paul has, has said from the very beginning, this message of salvation is all about both. It's all about bringing these two groups that seem so diverse, so divergent, so different. And, and this message, this gospel, is for both and. It's not a message only for the Jews. It's not a message that excludes the Jews and is only for the Gentiles. Right there from the beginning. And then we, we went through uh, Romans chapter 8, but then Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, they deal specifically with the place of the Jews in the gospel story and how the Gentiles are added to what God has been doing through his people, the Jews. And then we get to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, Paul addresses the specific issues, some of the specific issues that divided 
believers, divided Gentile believers and Jewish believers in the Roman church. And so we're going to read about it. I'm going to take a page back. Regan read from chapter 15. I'm going I'm to turn a page back and read just the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 14. So you get a feel for what the division was and why people were, were divided between Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome. This is what Paul says. He says, Accept one another, accept other believers who are weak in their faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. Those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? That, yeah, isn't that great? Paul says, who are you to condemn other, someone else's servants? Who is Paul saying that other believers are? Other believers are the servants of God. Who are you... <laughs> He's just wagging his finger at us. Who are you to condemn somebody who is a servant of the Lord? Anyway. They are responsible to the Lord. So let them judge whether they are right or wrong. Let him judge, excuse me, whether they are right or wrong. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. Verse 5. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. That's like the biblical precedent for for saying grace before we eat, isn't it? And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. Verse 7, for we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it is to honor the Lord. And if we die, it is to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and of the dead. Verse 10, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we read these verses, we, we read this bit about uh, people condemning one another because of what they eat or what they don't eat. And it sounds a little absurd, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a little absurd that somebody in, in the church in the first century would say, that person, that person can't be a Christian because they eat meat, or that person can't be a Christian because, because they uh, don't eat meat. Uh, the this seems like sort of an absurd thing. And we, we have vegetarians in our culture for all sorts of reasons, right? We, people are vegetarians in our culture for health reasons, for environmental reasons, for concerns over how animals are treated. We, you know, people are vegetarians for all sorts of reasons. We don't condemn them, do we? 
You know, like in the Church of the Nazarene, we don't, we don't take a position on eating meat. Praise God. We have enough things, right? We don't need to, we don't need to muddle into that. So we, uh, in, in our culture, it just sounds sort of weird that, that people would be condemned or condemning one another over whether they eat meat or not. The issue was that the meat that was commercially available in cities in the Roman Empire in the first century was often meat that was, was sacrificed to an idol. It was sacrificed to a God that was not God the Father of our Lord Jesus. And so Christians would, in order to purchase meat, in order to eat meat that was publicly available, often they would be forced to go to like the back door of the temples of other, other gods and purchase meat there. Or they would, be, they, would have to, they would be served meat if it was publicly available. They would be served meat that had been sacrificed in, in a religious, religious ceremony for a god that was not, not God. And so there were, there were Christians who said, if you eat that meat, you are participating in idolatry. And then there were other Christians who said, meat's tasty, and those gods are false. And so why, do, why would it matter if I just eat the tasty meat that is available commercially? Why, what's, God has made all things clean. And, and so why, why would something that's sacrificed to a fake God contaminate me if God's made it clean? And so this, this concern... This meant that some believers, you know, they just didn't eat any meat to, to completely avoid the look of idolatry. And, and then other believers, Paul takes the stance himself of, you know, it's, God's made it clean, and so why, why would I be concerned? But as, as Paul, Paul muddles into this issue in chapter 14, we realize this is a very divisive issue for the church in Rome. This is very, very divisive. That last verse I read, verse 10, he says, why do you condemn another believer? He's saying, other believers are saying, you can't be a Christian and eat meat. You can't be a Christian and not eat meat. And and the two sides were at war with one another. You get a sense that this, this is an issue that had the potential to completely divide the church in Rome. And so he reminds people, he reminds the believers in Rome that they will all stand in judgment before God and that their responsibility is to bring honor to God. Therefore, they don't get to judge one another. They don't get to condemn one another. They they don't get to say, and, and he says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? They don't get to say, God is not going to forgive you or welcome you into heaven because of your diet. And, and he goes on in, in verse 13, he, he says, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. And then the, from, from there, the, the last half of Romans 14, Paul says, so, so eat according to your conscience. Everybody ought to eat according to their conscience. If, if you are convinced that not eating meat is the only way to stay pure, don't eat meat. Do not violate your own conscience. And, and he says, don't try to convince other believers to violate their own conscience either. 
So don't try, just because eating meat is no big deal for you, don't invite someone from the church over who you know doesn't eat meat and serve them brisket. That, would, that is not how we treat one another. Don't, don't encourage others to violate their own conscience. And, and he, he says, you know, we need to, we, we shouldn't belittle those who are conflicted by things that don't, don't affect us. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't say, oh, here comes Mr. No Meat. You know, we, don't, we don't belittle one another. We don't, we don't treat each other poorly or better because, because they agree with us or not. But we actually, we actually look for ways to build one another up, even in the areas where we disagree. And so we get to the beginning of chapter 15. And I'm, I'm going to read for you the, the first four verses of chapter 15, overlapping just a little with what Reagan has already read. Paul says in, in Romans 15, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others to do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, and the, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So up to this point, the, the conversation about diet wasn't focused around people's identity as, as Jewish believers or Gentile believers. And there's some mixing in the diet conversation. Paul was, was Jewish. He ate meat sacrificed to idols. But more or less, the, the dividing line would have been along the lines of those who were Jews by birth. Those who were Jews by birth would have for all of their lives probably been vegetarians when they were in the city of Rome. They probably, for all of their lives, before they came to Christ, they would have stayed as far away from meat sacrificed to idols as humanly possible because it would have been sinful for them as Jews. And so when we, they became Christians, they, they continued to worship the same God, they continued to felt in their hearts that it would have been wrong for them to go buy meat sacrificed to an idol and, and eat it. Meanwhile, Gentiles would have said, I've been eating that meat all my life and it hasn't killed me yet. And so they, they would continue probably along that practice. When we get to chapter 15, Paul express, goes expressly to the issues that uh, uh, speaks specifically to Jewish and Gentile Christians, to the Jews and Gentiles. And, and he reminds them, he reminds Jewish Christians that God has been planning on inviting the Gentiles into his plan forever. He, he quotes from the Psalms to remind the Jewish Christians, this is our book of praise that we have been singing out of for centuries, and all this time we have been singing in hope that the Gentiles would be added to our number that the Gentiles would be invited into God's plan for bringing honor to him. And so, this has always been God's plan. He, he also, he's speaking also to the, to the Gentiles as he says, look, you're joining this people group. You're joining in what God's been doing through the Jews for centuries. And, and so, you're being invited in. And, and both belong. 
both belong. There, there isn't one side that can say, you don't, you don't belong, or the other side that says, no, we're, we're all that matters here. And so there's a lot of talk in, in this passage about the importance of harmony and peace and unity among believers. And Paul call, calls on Christians to receive from God, to receive from God the patience and encouragement and hope and joy and peace that will allow us to live in harmony and to bring praise to God. This, the, chapter 15 is about bringing honor to God together. And Paul encourages believers, we, we have to look out for one another. We, we, we should be reminded by this passage that Christianity is not an individual experience. Christianity is not a solo me and my God and none of y'all matter type of life. Christianity is a life lived in community, a life lived with other believers. And, and so in these verses, Paul, Paul makes it explicit that we are to look out for the good of our fellow believers. We, we, are, we are to build one another up. And we are to live at peace. And since this is Peace Week, and since peace is so abundant, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to focus in for, for a few minutes on this idea of peace. Paul, Paul talks about peace in a way that makes it easy to believe that if the church would just stop fighting, there would be peace. If, if, if people would just stop he says, stop condemning one another. If people would just stop fighting, there, there would be peace. And we have an idea in our world that, that peace is the experience of no conflict. And, and that's not wrong. Peace can begin when conflict ends. It, Paul is explicitly telling the Romans to put down their weapons with regard to this issue of eating meat. But that's not the sum total of peace. And Paul has, has in mind, when, when Paul talks about peace, I, I think Paul, as, as a Jewish Christian, he always remembers the Old Testament idea of shalom. The Hebrew word for, for peace is shalom. And shalom peace, in, peace in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament talks about peace, it talks about so much more than the end of conflict. When, when we read about peace in the Old Testament, shalom, it is God's restoring peace. It is the peace of the, lion, the lamb laying down with the wolf. That is the imagery we get from the prophets in the Old Testament of this type of peace. It is, it is swords being beaten into plowshares. It is the peace of God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Paul talks about peace in the Roman church, he, he is talking about all of these broken, divided pieces of the church coming together to create something new. He's talking about people who are broken being made whole and made beautiful again. That's what God's peace is. God's peace takes broken things in our world and it makes something beautiful out of them. And so that's why, that's why Paul says, in, in the Roman church, the strong should look out for the weak. We need to build one another up. Each believer 
Each believer is responsible for being a peacemaker in the church, which means we look at where there are broken pieces and we try to help make something whole and beautiful there. We don't let someone who's falling apart just continue to become more and more fractured. We look for for those places of brokenness and we go with God to, to try to help God create something beautiful out of that brokenness. And, and we, don't, we don't build one another up just because it's a nice thing to do, right? We have really nice people here, but the people who, who bring wholeness in this place aren't people who just do it because it's the nice thing to do. We do it because we are imitating Jesus when we do it. Jesus has treated us this way. Paul says so explicitly in, in verse, uh, verse 3, Romans 15, 3. Or he says, even Christ didn't live to please himself. Even Christ didn't live to please himself. Jesus himself came to take the broken things in this world, to take the broken you and me in this world, and to make something whole and beautiful out of it. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we have to follow him in a, as he has accepted our feeble faith. We accept others who don't have much faith. As he has accepted us in our brokenness and and our wrong opinions and wrong understandings, we accept others in different wrong opinions and wrong understandings of things. We accept one another, even even you have to accept me even when I'm wrong. (laughs) Even when when I I have weird notions about about how my my life of faith should look, and, and I get to accept you even when I think you ought to disciple yourself in a different way. And, and so one, one temptation we can have in the church, though, is to say, okay, I'm going to accept and I'm just going to kind of ignore any area of conflict. And let me tell you, I love to ignore conflict. It's, that's like my favorite conflict resolution uh, strategy is ignorance. Uh, <sighs> But, but our holiness, our love for God, and our love for others, particularly our love for others, it calls us to seek resolution rather than ignoring places that could cause confrontation. And, and Paul is giving us a classic example of that here in Romans 14 and 15 as he calls out specifically, these are the areas where you disagree These are the areas that are causing division among you, and you need to find unity. You need to find peace. There's a great example of this happening in our district family. The 75 churches in in northern Idaho and eastern Washington, as as we move toward eastern Washington, we find find ourselves more and more uh, with a mix of cultures around and, and we as a, as a district, we, with our district superintendent, uh, David Morey, he has decided we are not content to be a, a single culture church. We aren't content to just be an Anglo church. Uh, we, we believe that it, the gospel calls us to be an intercultural church, not just multicultural, not just where every culture is present, but intercultural where, where every culture is represented among us. And, you know, here in, in Idaho, we can look pretty, pretty monocultural, but even here, we believe we are called to represent our community as best we can. And, and so we, 
our district superintendent is leading us into this process of uh, we, our district leadership recently went through a, a cultural IQ assessment. We learned we're not very culturally intelligent <laughs> and, and we have a long ways to go to learn. And we understand that that is going to breed conflict. It is going to, our differences among the cultures that are represented in the Northwest, it's gonna cause problems. We're going to have misunderstandings. We're going to, to misstep and step on people's toes and hurt other people. But we believe that the gospel has called us to be a reflection of our communities. And so we're gonna keep muddling through it, trying our best, even, even though it would be easier to just say, the Church of the Nazarene in the Northwest is just a white church. We don't believe that that's what God's called us to do. Here locally, uh, we believe that God has called us to be an intergenerational church, not just a multi-generational church where, where we are all representative of all, all age groups, but we, we don't want to create... We have ministries that are focused on age groups, but, but we want to intentionally build times when we are mixing all of our all of our generations all of our people so we do wednesday night family nights and we you know my kids tell me i can't sit with them at the kids table so i don't know how good we're doing but we uh we believe that it's important that all our generations are together we do our prayer partner ministry mixing generations praying for one another uh we it, but it would be easy, it would be easy to look at our culture and look at the world around us, look at certain corners of social media, to believe that in the U.S., the generations are at outright war with one another, right? It would be easy to, to say that, as we have people from every generation saying bad things about other generations, particularly snarky jokes about other generations, that we, uh, we don't, we don't, want to see that kind of division among us. And, and we believe that God's called us to, to, be, to disciple one another, um, even though it may mean conflict. It, it will mean that we have to overcome the reality that we see things differently because of the year in which we were born. And so we, we believe that God has called us to do that. This is important work, even though we won't always agree on things. Uh, and and so, making peace means doesn't mean that we we all become of the same opinion about everything. Making peace means that we we will continue to disagree about things. It doesn't mean peacemaking doesn't mean that every difference is resolved. Did you know that you can still build people up that you disagree with? You can still build people up even if you you know that you disagree strongly with that person. Whether they're of the same age or of a different generation, you can love people who are not just like you. Paul, Paul was calling the church at Rome for the, the different divisions to love one another even though they weren't going to agree. He wasn't telling the meat eaters to become vegetarian. He wasn't telling the vegetarians to become meat eaters. He was saying, love one another. Build one another up. You are not going to resolve this difference. 
but you're still going to build one another up. This is so countercultural in our world. This is so <laughs> countercultural in our world. With our church board, we're reading a book right now that talks about how we live our faith in a world that is often mediated to us by the internet. Uh, we go to the internet oftentimes to, to decide what our opinions are about specific events, or if it's not the internet, some, some form of media, that we, we allow media to, to give meaning to the events of our world. And, and reading about some of the consequences of that, that orientation in our lives, uh, I read this week from this book called Faith for, for Exiles, I, I read one of the fascinating developments is that the fact that Americans are highly likely to say their friendships are formed with people who are most like themselves in terms of ethnicity, religion, education, faith. This is, this is highlighting how this has become more pronounced over the last decade than ever before in our culture. Over the last decade, in our friendships, we have gravitated more toward people who are just like us and, and pulled away in friendships from people who are not just like us. And it's true that birds of a feather flock together. You know, there, there is wisdom in, in the cliches of our world. But the, the church is called to be a mixed flock, right? We're, we're called to be a place where, where we come together in spite of our differences, and, and in the church, though, if, if we're going to continue to be a, a mixed flock, we, we must face the reality that these last several years have been more divisive in our culture and among our friendships and in our families than any of the years that most of us alive can remember. Uh, there may be some among us who will say, you don't know division, you didn't live through Vietnam and the civil rights movement. Now, those were divisive years in our history, but for many of us, these have been the most divisive years that we have lived in. Not only have the events of the last years been divisive, we have gone to sources of media to tell us what our opinions should be about those events. And we have a 24-hour cycle of, of opinions available to us, to mediate to us, to tell us what to think and what to believe about the events that are going on. And so we, we have found ourselves in a, in a time that it continues to be very, very divided. I believe now more than ever, the church has the responsibility to, to, be, to shine the light of peace into this world that is fractured and is getting hoarse from shouting down our opponents. We have the responsibility of showing the world that it is possible to disagree and to love. It is possible to, to disagree and love. And so as Christians, we have the responsibility of disagreeing and loving. We start here. We start here. We start with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We know we don't all agree. We continue to love. But we, we can't forget that our witness calls us to disagree with people outside of the walls of this place. 
and continue to love them as well. This disagreeing and loving, it's not a good church growth strategy. Uh, unfortunately, this is not... I think there's an opportunity for, for a church in our valley. I think a lot of churches in our valley are doing a great job of disagreeing and loving. I, I think there's a good opportunity. If you want to grow a church in Lewiston, uh, pick a side and preach that side and tell how everybody who disagrees with you every week is wrong. Uh, that, that's a pretty good church growth strategy, actually. Paul could have, could have built a great church without any conflict in Rome if he would have said, hey, meat eaters, kick all the vegetarians out because they're wrong. Paul could have built a, a great church in, in Rome if he would have said, hey, vegetarians, you got it right. Tell all the meat eaters they're going to hell. Preach that message every week. Paul could have built a church that would have been free of conflict. But it wouldn't have reflected the gospel. It wouldn't have reflected what God's peace really is, which is putting together broken pieces and making something new. And so we, we continue to believe that the church, that the gospel transcends political sides. And we believe that it's our responsibility to preach Christ crucified, which, by the way, Paul describes in, in Corinthians as a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The, the cross... Jesus, when he is preached, he's going to offend people on both sides of the aisle. And, and so, we need to get accustomed to the idea that Jesus is going to step on our toes no matter what our opinions are. And, and so, uh, we, we are called as a local church to continue to struggle with issues that are divisive. The, the absence of conflict is not the goal. Peace is the goal. And, and so we, as, as a local church, I think as a local church, as a congregation, we're, we're just going to continue to, to have growing pains. Because as a church, we are committed to avoiding extremes. You know, we, we reject the, the extreme of fundamentalism that says, if you disagree with anything that we affirm, you are going to hell. And we reject, on the other side, the, the extreme of liberalism that says there, there are no bounds on the Christian faith. And while rejecting those, those extremes, we envision ourselves as a pretty big tent. We, we continue to, to struggle with the uncomfortable reality that the gospel encompasses a variety of political opinions. And no one political stance gets it all right. We, we continue to struggle with the idea that, that social issues are difficult for us because there are biblical principles that address specific social issues that seem at conflict with biblical principles that address those same social issues. And, and so we, we are not going to get this all right all the time. We, we are going to continue to be, to be a mixed body and a, a body with a variety of opinions about how we worship, about what's important in church. We are committed as a church to not dividing over issues that are essential in the faith, like how we baptize people. We're committed to not 
dividing over how we read scripture as regards to creation or the end times. We're, we're committed to loving one another, even though we might have strong opinions, differing opinions about spiritual gifts, about, about the way that God could move in the church. And, and so we are, we are committed to, to loving one another. And it seems like at, at almost every turn, we are con- confronted with an opportunity to divide once again. And, and we are called... We are called by the gospel. Instead of walking away from one another when we think we disagree, we are called to walk toward one another. To say, I may not ever come to agreement with you, but you are my brother in the Lord. You are my sister in the Lord, and I am committed to helping build you up. I am committed to the peace of God reigning in your heart so that the broken things in your world could become whole. Because the only way that I can find Wholeness for the broken things in my world is is if you're walking with me. If you'll walk with me in the Lord so that together we can find that beautiful thing that God would do in each of us. And so we live in these days that seem so extremely divided. It'd be a mistake to ignore it. It'd be a mistake. It'd be easy to preach on on a day like today. Uh, that Jesus is, is making peace and, and to just not talk about anything that isn't just peace. <laughs> It'd be easy to just focus on, on a baby in a manger and, and avoid talking about social issues that, that divide us. And so it's, it's a mistake to ignore the division that, that lives among us. And instead of ignoring it, we, we need to ask, if peace on earth begins with me, what do I need to change in my life to be a peacemaker? If God has extended grace and mercy to us, to whom do we need to be extending grace and mercy? This isn't about the list of what we do and don't do. This isn't about the list of who agrees with me on all of my opinions and who doesn't. This is a call to look at the person of Jesus and say, he accepted me when I was wrong about so many things. He accepted me when I was far away from him and disagreeing with him about everything. And I don't think I fully understand all that there is to being like Jesus, but I I know that I am supposed to be more like him. And so, may we examine our hearts and do the hard work of walking through conflict with those who think differently from us so that we might find a community that is deep and wide, a community where broken pieces are coming together into something beautiful. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have allowed us to participate in this holy mystery. We thank you for your spirit that moves in us and your grace that's poured out on us as we sit as one people with one host who is Jesus. We pray that you would continue, God, to do your unifying work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to love even in the areas we disagree. Help us, Lord, 
to shine the light of peace into a dark world. Go with us this week, Lord, we pray, so that we can be like Jesus, making peace at every turn. It is in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go. May you shine the light of peace in a dark world.